welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. It's always wonderful to be here with a wonderful guest who I'm usually looking at on a computer screen, but well, I'm not looking at that person on a computer screen because they're sitting right next to me. And the person who's sitting right next to me is my father, who has been on the podcast before and generally we're in the same space. So here we are again in the same space. So welcome, Dad. Well. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes. Well, somebody just celebrated a birthday? Yes. And hopefully you'll be here for my 49th. <laughs> okay. I won't. I, so I'm not allowed to divulge how old you are? Or do you want to divulge how old no. you are? No. No. Okay. I'm more concerned about not counting the days, but counting what I can do in those days. So let's okay. not talk about my age, okay? All right. Yes, sir. So when my father says, let's not do that, we're not going to do that. But just know that it's a, a significant birthday, I think. And I'm so happy that I could come and be here to surprise you and celebrate with you. So, Well, thank you. I'm glad you're here because, indeed, you're helping me make my days count. So let's talk about this, though. So you, you have had a birthday. Well, you just had it the other day. And um, for, for people out there, is there any kind of wisdom you have about how to think about that one year older. Like for me, I'm like, okay, one year older means one year wiser, or it means five years that I can pretend that I'm younger. Like I make up all sorts of stuff. Do you Mm -hmm. have any kind of thoughts about, you know, birthdays? Well, first off, I don't feel a day older, (laughs) even though I am a day older. But the fact of the matter is, as we grow older, I think we become aware of the fact that our experiences begin to define who we are, And indeed, I think, make us worthy of being able to share our thoughts and our experiences with others for good purposes, as it were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would would hope so. And, you know, of course, you've done that all my life. And now you're sharing your, your wisdom, birthday or not, with other people. The last time that we talked, I believe it was a holiday, maybe right when things started to open up during the pandemic. And I was um, um, home for the holidays, the holidays as in Christmas and Kwanzaa and everything else that celebrated during that time, Festivus, you you name it. Um, So I was home and I said, oh, you know, even though we're talking about what does it mean to be a family and to be home during the holidays, um, I also said that we would talk later about um, a book that you had published. And so now we're back. It's your birthday. We talked a little bit about your birthday, but Now we're talking about sharing wisdom. So let's get into talking about at the time it was one book and now it's two books um, that (laughs) you've actually published. Um, So I'd like to start maybe with the first book since way back then it was the first book. Right. So your first book is um, called Surviving Toxic Isms and Polarizing Dissent, uh, Protecting Democracy, Protecting Democracy, right? Yes. I, I was very much concerned then, as I am now, uh, with the matter of gridlock in government and hostilities uh, amounting to our nation being more perhaps divided than ever, which is an overstatement to be sure. But racism, sexism, and a whole number of other dangerous isms are beginning to pervade our very existence. And at that time, I started talking about just the isms that I might enumerate Uh, at that time, realizing later, in fact, during the course of that, that it was not totally what I wanted to do. And indeed, I've come to the realization now that I want to do a trilogy. 
a trilogy. Yes. So the first one was Surviving Toxicisms and Surviving Polarizing Dissent. And then the next one, uh, the second one, is uh, titled Protect and Defend the U.S.'s Promise and Performance in an Age of Uncertainty. When I think about both of these books, it's so interesting because, first of all, the first book was written right before the January 6th insurrection. So the timeliness of it was really interesting given the topic of toxic isms and polarizing dissent, right? Yes. And I think even now it's really like the work that I do is in mental health. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I'm noticing right now, especially where I live in California, around certain legislation, it's not just California, it's happening in other places around the nation, is this polarization between groups of people around isms, if you will, around, you know, us versus them, mm -hmm. families versus consumers kind of thing that really doesn't have us working well together to actually do the best for the people that we care about. Instead, we're fighting, we're polarized around our particular issues. So it reminds me a little bit about what you talked about in your book. So can you share a little bit more about well, why did you even write the book? Yeah, well, even though I can't speak expertly about mental health, uh, but my field in communications is uh, centered in the behavioral sciences. And I don't think one has to be an expert to be able to see that the level of tension uh, that we're experiencing, the level of hostility that we're experiencing, cannot be healthy for us as individuals or us as a society and us as a nation. And so when I talk about protect and defend, uh, the image of maybe armed conflict comes to mind, protecting and defending against an invading army. No, no, I'm talking about both external and internal uh, enemies that we have to face if we're going to be a healthy and surviving nation uh, and a surviving, healthy uh, democracy. Right. And we don't do that very well, do we? <laughs> <laughs> right now, we are at a very dangerous juncture where in spite of having uh, achieved marvelous advancements in science and technology and economy and all of that, uh, we seem not to have been doing well or are not doing well at the moment in the sort of human social eras of our lives. So cognitively, our schools are doing a good job of teaching us facts and data, but in terms of how to feel and how to empathize, uh, I think we're not doing as well as we need to be doing at this critical juncture in our lives. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, in mental health, we talk a lot about youth mental health, quote unquote, crisis. Kind of don't like to use that term, but I understand why it's being used sort of strategic communications wise. And that, you know, people are feeling more and more isolated and it's harder for people to get along. And, you know, I think back when I worked in higher education, and it was all about taking the SAT or passing the test or passing the tests that are required, you know, to, to graduate from high school, then to go on to college. One of the things that always got taken away were the things that had to do with social emotional growth, mm -hmm. um, you know, connecting with others, teamwork, those sorts of things that are critical to, you know, getting along with other people in the workplace, getting along with your neighbors, building community. So we've sort of not put a lot of emphasis on those things in our education anymore. Indeed, I think we have de-emphasized that area of education that we used to label affective. Uh, if we were to dichotomize between cognitive, affective, and psychomotor, 
we will begin to understand how we human beings react to stimuli. And thus, when I talk about the cognitive areas, we're talking about how to deal with facts and data and that sort of thing. But the effective area has to do with your feelings and your perceptions and how you relate to other people and the environment and so on. And we went through a period, I believe, when teachers became shy of entering into the affective domain, being told that, yeah, you can deal with the cognitive and the psychomotor, but don't deal with my children's values, et cetera, et cetera. And now as we get into the area of book banning and the like, it becomes apparent we need to get back to talking about the affective domain. Well, I think we still have that uh conversation happening with groups of people around, you know, don't get into my kid's life around sort of their social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. And so we stop using the term social emotional learning, mm -hmm. even though those things are critical as, as part of, of life. And people might not know that uh, my educational background is in not just business, but also industrial organizational psychology. And one of the things that, um, you know, I learned during that time is that organizations and corporations were not valuing quote-unquote soft skills. Mm -hmm. And these would be the soft skills, right? Mm -hmm. But those soft skills are so critically important, especially for leaders uh, to help their staff, of course, um, grow into the work that they're doing. So I was just thinking about how all of this, you know, ties into, well, actually what I was thinking truthfully is the fruit does not fall far from the tree if people are wondering why my father and I can have this conversation and maybe how it's informed who I have become and sort of the things that I decided to study. So, you know, when I went to school, you know, I studied emotional intelligence. Who thought that I would actually study that? But that's what I did. Well, I didn't know we were going to get into that kind of interconnectivity. But now that you brought it up, uh, I do believe that the fruit falls very close to the tree. And I think who you are, your brother, and who we are is a consequence of our experiences. And back to the matter of book banning, uh, a house that has only one book is not really a house that's going to uh, generate uh, people who are caring. And, and that's why I'm so concerned about this book banning at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised, really, that as I do my research for that third book, which has to do with protecting democracy and uh, democracy is being threatened, it occurs to me that we need to recognize that free speech, which is a part of our constitution, is an essential element in any democracy. And I've been exceedingly surprised by the number of African-American scholars, writers, artists, who dealt with the importance of knowing our history. Mm -hmm. I, I came across something from Frederick Douglass just recently. And if I can quote it, let's see. He said something like this, that to suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the right of the hearer as well as the rights of the speaker. And uh, I, I'm reminded of something else that was said by Frederick Douglass. Uh, he says something to the effect that the best friend of a nation is he who most faithfully rebukes her for her sins. And the worst enemy is he who seeks to excuse, palliate, or defend them. And therefore, as we deny children's access to a wide range of different ideas, we are denying them the ability to serve as true patriotic functioning Americans. Yeah, it feels so un-American, quite frankly, you know, to to be 
directed in a way that people are withholding information from you rather than giving you all the information so that you can learn through, you know, even your own experiences, maybe with your family about what your beliefs will be or how you want to fight for something or advocate for something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thinking about, um, as you talk about, you know, um, knowing our, our histories and again, sort of in the mental health movement, since people know that's where I work, there wasn't a lot of understanding about um, supporting or not supporting a particular piece of legislation and how it affected the Black community. Mm. When we're talking about advancing things like um, involuntary commitment and, and not looking at what is the evidence behind it to support that it really helps people engage in the long-term in treatment and work towards their recovery. There's actually a lot of mixed um, research about it. Um, there's research, for example, that advancing it for people with substance use disorders can actually, after they're um, out of these coercive treatments, because there hasn't been enough time to um, engage in their recovery and recovery practices, many people turn back to particularly opioid use and die from opioid overdose. Mm -hmm. So in fact, it would almost say you shouldn't be doing that with this particular population while legislation is saying we're going to advance that for this particular population. Mm -hmm. But the other issue that comes up is there's disparities for Black men in particular who are, do not have culturally relevant services voluntarily in the community. So we find more and more Black men in particular who are under some type of mandated orders well disproportionately um, to the size of the population. And that's something that I kept speaking into. And people said, well, we really can't talk about Black people. This this is a peer issue. And I'm thinking, what? What, what are you talking about, right? Indeed. And that's why those who talk about, let's not talk about different ethnic groups and different racial groups. Let's all be one, one big happy family. Why can't we all get along? Let's not have diversity training. Let's defund diversity programs in public schools and even in universities. But yet there are different socioeconomic factors that enter into behavior. And to the extent that we get rid of studies about diversity and considerations about diversity, to that extent do we fail to solve problems that we all uh, live with. And so the so-called cultural wars that are being talked about, doing great injury. And even when I talk about democracy being threatened, both sides of the political coin are talking about that. But one side is talking about it as though it's the other side's fault, uh -huh. when in, in, in fact, it's all of our fault. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. We cannot bifurcate and, and segregate along ideological lines because diversity is bad. Diversity is good. In fact, it is one of the strengths of this economy, not only of this economy, of this nation. I mean, having lived in different parts of the world, Asia and, and, and Europe, and visited extensively in Africa and the Caribbean, one of the things that set us apart is our diversity. We are the envy of the world because we have this diverse people. And the ones who come here are the ones who start businesses quicker than anybody else. And those who didn't come of their own accord, like African-Americans, there would be no Capitol building, uh, White House. There would be no mansions in South Carolina and Savannah, Georgia, were it not for the, uh, the economy that was built upon uh, agriculture in the South. So we need to be mindful of these politicians who talk about, let us get rid of diversity. Let us not talk about different cultures. We are one. Well... Are we a melting pot or are we a tossed salad? A tossed salad is just as 
tasteful as a melting pot. Yeah. So let's not talk about that kind of bifurcation. It's dangerous. When you talked about, um, you know, traveling around the world, and you know, that was part, of course, of course, my upbringing. Yes. Um, and you know, I when when people ask, well, how is it that you're able to have conversations or sit at tables where you know you're really in disagreement with what people are talking about? Um, and I said that I I think it has a lot to do with the fact that when we traveled around the world, one of the things that you and mom really impressed upon, you know, me and my brother is that we are guests in the country that we're visiting. And, right. and as such, we need to learn as much about the culture, the language. And we did that by being um, either living directly in the communities mm -hmm. and or participating in things. Like I tell everybody, I was a Korean Girl Scout. Wait, what? Yes, I was a Korean Girl Scout, yeah, you know, yeah. um, and, you know, our piano and our violin teachers were Korean when we lived in, in Korea, but we would take part in everything that was about that culture. I did Korean fan dancing, so, or traditional fan dancing. Right, right. And I think that's really helped me be able to use a lot of what, what we call intellectual humility, being yeah. able to see things from a different perspective or a different view Mm -hmm. um, because I have had to do that when I live in, in other countries. I have to understand the other culture and put mine to the side, if you will, while I'm there. Right. And it doesn't mean that you're being critical of your own country or culture. Uh, but even if we are critical, uh, that can serve a purpose too. And in that connection, I'm reminded of a slogan, not a slogan, a quote that I have pasted on my wall in the office. It says, what greater expression of the faith in the American experiment than this having to do with criticizing our country? Yet what greater form of patriotism is there than the belief that America is not yet finished, that we are strong enough to be self-critical, and that each successful generation can look upon our imperfections and decide that it's in our power to remake this nation to more closely align with our highest ideals? It's a long quote, but that was, oh, Barack Obama in mm -hmm. 2015 mm -hmm. at the 20th anniversary uh, of Bloody Sunday at Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. Yeah. So let's talk about those highest ideals, because when I when I hear that, especially in today's world, the question becomes, whose ideals are the highest? As people talk about colonization and decolonization, land back for the indigenous people who were here in the Americas that, you know, didn't get their fair share for black Americans who many were taken from stolen from one land, brought to the other to build up the commercialization of this country and not benefit from it. And also have their original lands also colonized from, from which mm -hmm. they were uh, stolen. So um, I remember when um, Colin Kaepernick was taken a knee, Remember, so this was all about sort of, you know, really standing up against injustices for African-Americans, especially as they were being murdered by the police or killed by the police. And so um, during the singing of the national anthem or playing of the national anthem, Kaepernick would take a knee. Mm -hmm. And many people were saying it was disrespectful, it was un-American, and it was definitely disrespectful to the armed forces, people who had served. And when I think about your book, protect and defend, part of it is written from your own experience as being a person in the military, lifelong military officer. Mm -hmm. So what did what did you think about Kaepernick? And did you feel that it was disrespectful? No, I did not. 
And this is curious because African-Americans, those of us who served in the military, for example, served at times when our parents at home couldn't vote. In fact, when I took the oath of office as a young second lieutenant, and going straight away to Korea and then later back to the States and then later to Vietnam and then to Germany and so on and so on, my father in Jacksonville, Florida, could not vote because it preceded the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But yet through it all, we've held the faith. We have been committed to trying to make this the more perfect union that we say. And so therefore, I think uh, there's a debt, not necessarily material, but certainly a conscious, spiritual uh, acknowledgement that those who come here as immigrants, whether their own free will or force, they have been contributors to this nation's welfare and have helped bring us closer to that ideal that we espouse but not always practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I suspect there are very few people who know that Pacific Douglas, that Renaissance former slave who became a diplomat and almost a <laughs> Renaissance man, I say again, that as he criticized this nation, he also recruited freed blacks to serve in the Union Army. And that as many as 200,000 blacks served in the Union Army, two of his own sons served in the Union Army. And while he was recruiting, he was also criticizing. Mm-hmm. And that brings again uh, to mind another distinguished American. I'm talking about the sociologist W.B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm who talks about the fact that we are imperfect, but we still should strive to perfection if we can get there. And a quote that's favorite of mine from his uh, reads something like this. Nations reel and stagger on their way. They make hideous mistakes. They commit frightful wrongs. They do great and beautiful things. And shall we not best guide humanity by telling the truth about all of this? So as far as the truth is ascertainable, we should tell it. Snap, clap, thumbs up, all that, right? And that that is where we are today. And it's because when we tell the truth, especially about our own experiences, if it doesn't match the other person's experience, then it's not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yet we can understand and accept the other person's experience as theirs, non-judgmentally. Mm-hmm. So we're speaking our truth. Right, just mm-hmm. like W. B. Du Bois said, we're speaking our truth, but our truth gets subjugated for somebody else's truth. Yes. So that's why I was asking when Barack Obama says the highest ideals, whose ideals? Mm-hmm. You know, does it get to be the prevailing majority? Does it get to be power and privilege? How do we come to consensus that these are the ideals, even if we are at different power differential? Yes. You know what I'm saying? I understand exactly. In fact, it brings to mind Du Bois again, who talks about the dual consciousness of being uh, Black in America, that we are required to see ourselves from our own racial and ethnic perspective, and we're required to be mindful of how others see us. And so such phrases like, you know, the angry Black man, a woman, when we are just talking about someone who's being assertive, well, why the majority culture does not have to deal with this dual consciousness, we do. Yeah. And therefore, to seek our advice and to have us participate in a diverse society is to embolden us and enable us to be contributors even further. 
And so as anyone tries to keep us from being in the flight pattern of corporate and political ideas, then they are denying the country the benefit of our contributions. Right. And then that also, back to mental health, impacts our mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. When you cannot self-actualize and be that person that you're meant to be because there are structural barriers based on racism, sexism, all of the isms, that impacts your mental health and well-being, mm-hmm. you know? And a few years ago, several years ago, I asked you to um, record a quote by Martin Luther King, and it was around creative maladjustment. Do you remember reading that? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a little bit about what we're talking about. The angry black man mm-hmm. is that's our creative, creative way of dealing with a unjust world. Indeed. And we're not angry. Mm-hmm. You know, we're really standing up for the things that we need. We're expressing um yeah, we're just expressing the things that we need, but it comes out like, well, I'll dare you. Yes, <laughs> yes. Who do you think you are? Right. You know, I, I recall to be personal about it that early on when I was serving in uh, West Germany, at about, about the time of your birth, by the way. <laughs> yeah, don't say how old I am either. <laughs> anyway, um, there were race incidents, riots, if you will. There were ugly demonstrations uh, about school integration. And I remember your mom and I on vacation in France and walking down the Champs-Élysées in Paris. And I looked over the headline on the newspaper and it had an awful, ugly picture of American women, uh, white women, screaming and spitting at the little white child who was being escorted to school. By the the black child. Black child, mm-hmm. yes. I got back to Germany and my German colleagues had seen the same thing. And they asked me, by then I think I was the captain, Captain Myrick, can you help us understand this? You know, you know about our racist Nazi era and how we have been, quote unquote, denazified by your programs, et cetera, et cetera. So what's going on in America? And then here I am because they thought I would have an answer because I was an African-American. And I said, you know, what you're seeing is evidence of our growing pains that uh, in spite of it all, you must understand that you're seeing it and reading about it because we are free society with free speech and freedom of the press and so on. And so we are closer to achieving that ideal democracy than most other nations who espouse to want it than anyone else. Now, mind you, I overstated the case mm-hmm. and it took an emotional toll on me. Mm-hmm. And I asked myself, how did you do that with such alacrity? Well, I had taken the oath to protect and defend my country, my constitution, and to do otherwise would have done us a disservice. But at the same time, I left the door open for them to understand that we're not perfect yet, mm-hmm. that we still have a ways to go. And that was then in the 60s, and that can be said today still. Mm-hmm. We still have a ways to go. And in spite of one of my uninformed friends, acquaintances, I will say, who was dismissively saying that all we've gained is more roaming space on the plantation. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how big is this plantation? Mm-hmm. Does it extend to the bottom of the sea, to outer space, to the White House? Mm-hmm. We've been to all of those places, mm-hmm. and there's still some more to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So don't despair. Yeah. 
Well, that's, I love that because I think sometimes it's easy to sort of lose hope. I think, you know, we, we keep thinking or what I keep hearing in, in my circles is we're going backwards. And, and I, I think of a couple of things. I think of, I think of two things. One is, and I can't remember exactly which South African country this comes from, but there's a weaving pattern and it goes around in a circle um, and it starts, let's just say white and black. It doesn't have to be white and black, but it's definitely light and dark and the colors alternate. So as you're weaving around in a circle to make this basket or whatever it is you're making, it may start with a light color and then it goes to a dark color then it goes to a light color then it goes to a dark color and the length of each of these these colors light dark light dark is different and what they're telling you is that you're you're always on a journey it's not about the destination it's about the journey and sometimes the journey is really very light very easy and you walk it with ease other times the journey is dark and it may be a little bit tough it may be short or it may be long. That's why the length of the light and dark is mm -hmm. different. But at the end of the dark, there's always going to be that light. And at the end of the light, there's probably going to be some dark. And mm -hmm. at the end of the dark, there's going to be some light. Yes, That's the journey of life. Right. And I love that because I think that's actually true. And that gives me hope that when I'm sitting sort of in this sometimes a lack of hope space or a dark space or well, we're still on the plantation, but we're still not on the plantation because there's still more to go, as you've said. I think, okay, maybe I'm just sitting in that pattern in a little bit of a dark space. Mm -hmm. And if I keep working towards the things that we all want to kind of work towards, I'll get to that light space. Mm -hmm. And um, in some Native American culture, same thing. The journey is a circle and you mm -hmm. go in this circle just mm -hmm. in the same way. I, if I could put a coda, uh, <laughs> but then the to the story I just told you about. Well, you know the story about my being in Europe at the time when the sixties were going on here and how strolling down the Champs-Élysées, feeling a sense of freedom and then becoming disturbed about what was going at home. The fact of the matter is I had just put in a request to remain in my military assignment in Europe for another six months. But when I saw these photographs, these pictures on the front page of the French newspaper, I said to your mom, you know, I think we need to go home. I'm feeling too bifurcated, too conflicted. And lo and behold, we got back to Germany. And I wrote a letter saying that, you know, I think I'd like to come back to the States uh, and like to cancel my request for an extension. And I was told, this almost seems scripted. Oh, you didn't get the letter yet. You're coming back to the States and you're going to USC for your master's degree. <laughs> and I did that. And then as I was ready to go to Vietnam, I said, well, when do I get my orders? Well, we've decided you're going to stay on for another year to get your PhD. Then I finished and I said, okay, do I go to Vietnam now? No, you're going to the Army's Command and General Staff College to be a faculty member there. Now, I couldn't have scripted that. But I think somebody must have been listening to the speeches I was giving back in Germany. And one of them I remembered given to a Toastmasters club that won an award uh, was titled, Where There's No Listener, There's No Noise. Mm. Talking about my American colleagues tuning out the stories about what was happening at home and not being concerned about being back here to help deal with our problems. You just reminded me of something else. When you decided to come back, and again, I'm, I'm 
toddler at this point. I'll put it that way because I'm trying to be careful about letting people know how old I am. They can figure it out if they want. But at the end of the day, when you decided to come back, you were, again, This now this is going to go back to Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. You came back and you're a man in uniform mm-hmm. and you're a black man in uniform. Mm-hmm. And we come back to the United States and generally you get to visit with your family, mm-hmm. which was in New Jersey at the time. Um, but you had to get to California. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I recall, I think we drove across country. Yes, we drove. We across drove country. across country in Betsy, which was my car later as mm-hmm. a teenager. Mm-hmm. But we, I, I call the car Betsy. That's my name for the car. But anyway, we, we drove. And now this may have been my first time back in the United States um, since I was born in Germany. And you had to think about how you were going to drive across country. Even in uniform, you had Mm -hmm. to think about how you're going to drive across country. So anybody who saw the movie Green Book, or if you haven't seen the movie Green Book, but you had to think about those things, about which is the safest way for a Black man to travel. Because even in uniform, you were not protected. Indeed. And um, there was one place along the way where I came down with a fever, or I was kind of sick, and we needed a place to stay at night. And I'll let you finish the story because... Well, you, yeah. you reminded me of several stories, and I'll be brief. On the way to Germany, you'd not been born yet, but your brother was a baby. Driving back from Jacksonville, Florida, where my family lived, my mother and father, we ran into an awful electrical thunderstorm. It rained so you know, heavy that it broke the windshield wipers. Where can I stay? What hotel will accept me? So I stopped at a gas station and asked a young man, a young white man, I said, is there a motel or hotel or something? And he looked at me and he said, there's Mrs., for the lack of a better term, Mrs. Murphy around the corner has a rooming house and she might be able to help you. So I drove over there and the lady met me at the door and I told I was looking for uh, housing and she says do you want it for two hours or four hours (laughs) ma'am you don't understand and so look and saw the red lights and the velvet furniture and all of that and I was the brothel and I said ma'am you don't understand I'm traveling with my wife and my baby and we can't continue in this weather and she's oh son she says come around the side and there's a staircase leading up to the second floor. There's a room right at the top there. So she directed me, my one-year-old son, and we spent the night in a brothel before heading off to Germany. Coming back from Germany, having been gone four years, coming to Florida to visit my parents, uh, I saw a roadside restaurant, which was safe to stop in. And I pulled over and I said, Karis, what do you want? I want a hot dog, a hamburger, whatever you liked at the time. And I want a milkshake. Carl, what do you want? My son and my wife, what do you want? So I said, stand in the car and let me get out and get it. I stand in line and come to the window and a sign is held up. This is 1964. We reserve the rights to serve whoever we wish or please. I couldn't get food for my family, and I'm a captain in the U.S. Army, and now having served almost six years out of the country defending democracy, going to Vietnam, coming again from Florida, stopped at the gas station. Karis, Kyle, go to the restroom while I'm getting gassing up. You come back. You did. It's locked, Dad. Locked? 
And so your grandmother said, let me go. And she went back and she came back and says, there are two bathrooms, three. One with men, one with women, and one says colored. Mm-hmm. This is 1968. I'm headed to Vietnam. Yes. Now, am I supposed to be a healthy man? Am I supposed to go and be, you know, an ambassador for our country? I got to do it, though. Got to do it. Protect and defend. Does it take a toll? Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's what the situation is like was then, and it's not resolved now. And uh, we have a way to go. But like Obama has said and others, the fight is worth fighting. The battle is worth winning. Yeah. We have to stay in the fight. And so many people are. So I don't. I don't think people have given up. I don't think... I think, yes, people can feel frustrated, sometimes lose a glimmer of hope, but, but, you know, I continue to see people fighting and um, speaking up and speaking out about the very issues that you're talking about. And if they needed a little help with that, they have two books that they could read that are written by you mm-hmm. <laughs> that are available on Amazon.com. Yes, I just did a shameless plug for my father's books. Everybody get over it. So we, <laughs> we, we will actually uh, post the, the links for your books. If, if well, you thank want you. To get I hadn't thought of that. But thank you so oh, much yeah. because I'm not, you know, manning the barricades at my age, but I can man the pencil yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I can write. Yes, you can. You can beautifully. So before we sign off, I just want to say again, happy birthday to my father and how much I love him and how very, very fortunate I am to have you as my dad. My mom is my mom and my brother is my brother, our whole entire family. But, you know, when we have these kind of conversations and so the audience knows, this is the kind of conversation we have a lot in our our home. So, uh, you know, it has really helped shape who I am today. So thank you for being such a wonderful dad. So couldn't we repeat this? Can we repeat this at my 39th next year? Uh, next year, if you're going back 10 years, I'm going back 10 years with you. Yes, we can do that. <laughs> so thank you very much. And for our guest, uh, for our guest, that was our guest was my dad. For our listeners, um, I just want to remind you of what my producer says, which is subscribe, like, comment. Okay, all of that is wonderful. But the most important thing you can do is to share and to share this episode of the podcast, because certainly there are people out there who would benefit from hearing the conversation that we had today. And until then, we will see you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. <laughs>